0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. Hey, ED ECMO crew. It's September 2022, and the last three weeks have been amazing. We had our double reanimate session sold out. We trained over a hundred different healthcare providers—ninety-eight docs from all over the world—came uh, out to San Diego, and we had just a fantastic time. There was also Elso last week out in Boston. Two just amazing meetings that I think had so many great pearls. And today, I'm gonna—before we jump into the episode, I'm gonna share with you one of them that I learned. It was from Jason Bartos stellar guy from Minneapolis, the cardiologist who at Dimitri has really revolutionized the world of ECMO. And he, we were discussing in one of our cannulation sections at Reanimate on some of this minutia. You'll hear if you ever come to Reanimate this idea that we say obsess over the minutia. And one of the things that we were talking about is just how do you cannulate best? My personal opinion is to use one cannulator so sometimes we'll train to have if you have enough physicians to have one cannula on each side so that you're having the maximum benefits you get each doc can go for a vessel i've changed my mind i think the one cannulator initiation is better and that's because you get an ideal situation i like to put the ultrasound across the bed from me so i am looking with my line of sight i'm right-handed so i like to be on the right hand side of the patient um, but this, this is controversial, and I am open to other opinions on this, but that's, that's just what I think at this point in the game. So if you're doing that, if you have a cannulation section set up where there is a cannulator on the right side of the body of a wire assistant right behind them, and the ultrasound across, from the, across the patient from you, then how do you manipulate your hands in such a way that you minimize the risk of losing that arterial vessel? So you've got chest compressions going on the abdomen is bouncing up and down and you're trying to get that wire into that vessel how do you do it best well you have a couple of options first of all you have the ultrasound probe in your left hand you have the needle in your right hand i actually like to take off the hub of the needle i don't use the the plunger on the back because i think it's just one added step but the real question is, is when you're going from that ultrasound probe with the left hand on the on the patient and that and that needle in your right hand and you're inserting it, you see the flashback um, with chest compressions. Obviously, it's going to be more difficult to assess the venous versus arterial. But because you have the ultrasound, you know that it's in the artery. How do you transition from that to wire and vessel? And that is the question right here. So my opinion, and now after talking with Jason, I think this is, this is solidified because the expert, the guy who does this more times than probably anyone, is to actually remove your hand from the ultrasound, put it down, so you now have your free left hand. That free left hand then grabs ever so gently the tip of that needle. You remove your right hand and you take the guide wire, which the wire assistant is handing to you, and you put your hand just farther than the needs for that wire to go into the vessel. So you grab, if, you use a, if you're using a super stiff, then this is easier. If it's a floppy wire, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. But you take that wire and then you, in one swoop, you push it through the needle and into the vessel. And now, in a very small amount of time, you have got that vessel, that uh, wire, into your femoral artery. And at that point, it's game on. You've completed the best. They've completed the whole course. Now, there is a little bit of discussion point, which Jason did bring up, and that is that sometimes with that left hand, he won't even hold the needle because he's afraid that his hand is going to be the source of what pulls that needle out. So after he does the left hand with the ultrasound machine and the right hand with the needle insertion, he will remove his right hand from the needle and he'll just let the needle sit in that vessel bouncing up and down with chest compressions. And then with his free right hand, actually he has free two, two free hands at this point, he just inserts that wire right through that, that needle. All right, so that's one pearl from this last month. I'll try and add a, several more that we've learned over the last couple of weeks into the upcoming episodes. This month, I have Gauri Mark from Aarhus University out of Denmark. And we're going to talk about her new paper. It is phenomenal. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Gauri.
1: Good morning, Zach. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you? What are you doing? How did you get involved with, with ECMO?
1: Right, so I'm a cardiology resident from the Aarhus University Hospital. Um, been there since 2016, and before that, I had an internship in anesthesia and in intensive care, and that really spurred my interest in occupation, especially and especially ECMO. Um, so I rushed to the Department of Cardiology because I knew they had great experience in that and seen so many great cases. So that's why I'm there.
0: Awesome, and Gary and I first met at the Paris course uh, last year, and we're going to see her out at Reanimate in just a few months here in San Diego. Yes. So we're excited to have her. Can't wait for a great time. It's going to be awesome. We're doing it at Paradise Point here in San Diego, out on the beach. We're going to have uh, just a ton of fun. It's going to be a great time. So come on out if you if you have the time off. Uh, so Gary, so let's let's talk about Denmark. Tell me what the ECMO landscape looks like out there.
1: Right. So, Denmark is a very small country. It has a population of 5.8 million inhabitants, and there are only four cardiac arrest centers in Denmark that perform eCPR. And the uh, University Hospital has been performing ECMO since 1997, uh, but eCPR has been performed since 2010, and it is the most aggressive center as well. We have much more cases than the other centers. But, but it's a small country. We don't have many cases. I, I guess an annual case number would be 40 in the entire nation. So um, our experience uh, within the number of population is is small, but but we have great numbers. We have great experience with it.
0: And so how does, how does it work? You have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It comes in. And tell me about the process.
1: Right. So th- there are some regional differences. I'll just tell you how we do it in Aarhus. Um, well, Central Denmark region, the region where Aarhus uh, University Hospital is, there's is only one cardiac arrest center in the region. And we have a population of 1.2 million inhabitants. And we're so privileged that we have community citizens who perform bystander CPR within a few minutes. I think the rate is more than 80% bystander CPR. So when there is an ACA case, they will call 112, which is similar to your 911. And a person will dispatch a emergency physician with a rapid car uh, together with an ambulance as soon as that is an ACA case. And this physician has three options. They will be dispatched to the scene. Either they will terminate the treatment if the the treatment is uh, futile. Or if the patient has ROSC, um, the patient will be transported to local hospital if it's a non-cardiac course. Uh, if it's a cardiac cause, it will be transported to a cardiac arrest center. And then there's this refractory ARCA population. And we have some uh, criteria which is used in all other centers as well. You know, bystander, witness arrest, and there's an age limit and, and shockable rhythms. If they find a patient as a candidate this patient will be communicated to a cardiac arrest center and they will decide whether this patient should be transported or not. And this has to be happening, you know, within a few minutes. Um, and if, if they decide to transport them, they will be transported with ongoing mechanical chest compression uh, directly to the cath lab, where a secondary evaluation will be done by the ECMO team.
0: So just to get back to that bystander CPR, do you, I mean, I saw that in your paper, I think it was like 90 something percent. Uh, How is that? What do you think is the reason for that?
1: Well, I I think that has to do with uh, some great colleagues, very, very enthusiastic colleagues who've been introducing uh, a lot of volunteer programs. So in Denmark, uh, the general uh, bystander CPR rate is remarkably high compared to many other countries. And I think if we've been increasing the focus on occupations and, and, and done some great campaigns uh, to educate community citizens. So that's why we have that high, high rate, which is absolutely pivotal. But without them, eCPI would be more or less useless. So, so we benefit that a lot.
0: Okay. So patients come into this central center, decision is made whether they go on ECMO. How, who actually does it and where does it happen?
1: Right. So in the cath lab, we have the ECMO team, which consists of thoracic surgeons, invasive and non-invasive cardiologists, and tested and in intensive care. And of course, our perfusionists. Um, and it's a team effort. So everybody's there. We get the report and the, the decision is made very, very quickly. So the cardiac or the invasive cardiologists will do the cannulation. Uh, unless it's a complicated cannulation, the thoracic surgeons will uh, assist uh, with cutdown. So it's always done with solving a technique with ultrasound uh, guidance.
0: But you have the thoracic surgeons in the room just yeah. in case you need a cutdown.
1: Not not for only that they are a they play a pivotal role in the decision making as well. Okay. So, so it's it's a team. Yeah, because when we started the program, it was a couple of very enthusiastic ECPR people from all three departments that actually started the program. We didn't have a protocol at the time, but, but I think we started around 2010 and these guys just started putting people on ECMO and we had some amazing uh, survival rates around 35%. And since then, it's been, you know refined and the organization has been restructured and a lot of awareness both in the pre-hospital and in-hospital management. So that's So they are a pivotal role. They do play a pivotal role in it. they'll be very, very mad if they're not in it.
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's fantastic. I do find it though interesting because the invasive cardiologists, this is what they do all day long. They put needles and wires and cannulate these vessels. And so, Tell me if I'm overstepping the bounds here, but do you think that the invasive, that there's an understanding that the invasive cardiologists have this, this specialty, this technique down, they are the masters in the room of putting in these cannulas?
1: I think that's how. Again, you know, we've been performing this for ten years, and, and I've been, you know, looking up more than three thousand patient records, re- reading them, and there has been a shift. So, in the beginning, it was mostly thoracic surgeons who did it, but now, as you say, we we have a cath lab full of cardi- invasive cardiologists who do this every single day, and have a great experience within uh, this field. So, so it it has been, you know, a change in time and and. It's it's so normal for us that it's it's the invasive cardiologists who do that. A role for everybody.
0: That's amazing. All right. So now your paper took a look at these patients, both the patients that got ROSC in the field, patients that came in that didn't get ECMO, and then the patients that got ECMO. And you even have a, a subcategory in there about impella. Tell me about what the, the study looked at.
1: So the thing is that um, in Denmark, we have adopted more or less this demi system of care. So, so so there has been increasing centralization of occupations, but we didn't have any records on it. So I started uh, looking into that. And it was so um, incredibly interesting to see that the number of patients increased over time so rapidly. And we had a lot of people who had ROSC. Who were not uh, referred to the ICU, so they were, you know, had ROS within 15 minutes or something like that. They, they didn't require ICU. They were not comatose when they came. So we started to uh, do this subpopulation as well because we had an increasing number of ECPR patients as well. So it is the entire acute population that is referred to all oh, university hospital, and I think it's it's quite imp- important to. Uh, state as well. So it's a very selected patient group as well. So it's not the entire Central Denmark region population, but very, very selected patients who are referred to all University Hospital.
0: And so in in your paper, you saw a very high percentage of the patients that had ROSC on admission that survived. And then you had a a less but also impressive number of patients that had ECMO that survived. Is that right? True. Yeah. And so you, your decision or the, the kind of the, the thrust of the paper was looking at these patients and deciding how do we compare them with the neurologic outcomes in these and just sort of displaying to the world how your program works?
1: Yes. So, so this was a retrospective study. We just wanted to say, uh, I think in, in this ECPR era, it's so important that all organizations report their experience. This is how we learn from each other. And as we were so aggressive with this eCPR program and ACA in general. I thought it was so important that we also report our experience. And and 20 years ago, either you had cardiac arrest or you didn't have cardiac arrest. Now, You have subpopulations, right? You have the ROS population. How do we treat them? How do we manage them? When do we transport them? And then we have all these refractory cardiac arrest patients. Who should we stop or terminate treatment? Who should we put on ECMO and so on? So it's really to audit what we did and how can we improve that. Uh, And there are a lot of things that we can improve. Even though we have some great numbers here, there are a lot of things we can improve, which is the point of it all.
0: So what's your message to the world? What would be your take-home from your experience?
1: The take-home message is that all uh, programs start with an observational study. So if you need to have some numbers and then look into what are we doing really great and what are the improvements in our organization, this is how we can improve. So always audit and monitor what you're doing.
0: So one of the some of the observations that I had from the paper was the characteristics kind of fell in line with what we all want to say. So the older people didn't do as well. The VF did better. bystander CPR witness was was very high in your in your subpopulation, but they they did well as also. and then the signs of life patients did that was a significant prognostic improvement if they had signs of life. right. And so, you know, there are papers that kind of go against these things. And we kind of say, well, you know, it just makes sense that someone that's older is not going to do well. And so your paper sort of reiterates, in my mind, the the things in our mind that all should be prognostic, either benefits or disadvantages. Mm. Uh, I did say a second thing in your paper was the a lot of people on ECMO that were down for a long time.
1: Right. so like right.
0: two hours there's a significant population yeah. that had, that had downtimes as long as that any comments on that
1: yeah so uh, that surprised us as well uh, the thing is um, that again Central Denmark region has a population of 1.3 million inhabitants We have one cardiac arrest center which is placed on the very east coast which means that we have citizens who live on the west coast who have, more than 170 kilometers, that is more than 100 miles to the nearest cardiac arrest center. And obviously, when you have to transport these patients, it will take longer time. And uh, in a recent or, or, or previous numbers uh, of our ECPR cases showed that even though we transported them for a very long time, they survived. So that was actually criteria in our ECPA protocol, but we had to take it out because we Kept seeing these patients with downtime more than hundred minutes, but still surviving. So it is an effort to um, eliminate inequality in health. That they are highly selected, but patients who live in rural areas should also have the same uh, advanced treatment as patients who live five minutes from a cardiac arrest center. But It was surprising to see that because in the ECPR community, we keep saying that patients should have a downtime of 60 minutes. That's like the golden hour. But we only had six patients who had that. All of them survived with good neurological outcome, but the vast majority of the patients had more than 75 up to two hours of low flow time. Um, And we're digging into that data. So how did we select these patients? How, How come these patients have such great outcomes? despite these very, very long low flow times. So that's the next step to see how can we select them.
0: Okay, so yeah, that would be a definite difference from the majority of programs that I think are out there, that just inclusion of these these very prolonged cases. I do look through here and and check, tell me if I'm reading this correctly. So it did seem like the vast majority of the patients that got that less than 60 minutes, they did well. Neurologically, they did well. But the patients who were at these prolonged times, while we had a pretty good survival to discharge rate, the neurologic function did take a hit. Right. So, I mean, I guess the the one conclusion or the thing that somebody might say is that, okay, so yes, it's true that if I can put somebody on ECMO at more than an hour, I can get them to, to be discharged, but are they neurologically intact?
1: Right. I I think um, in our cohort, more than 20% of the patients who had low flow time more than 75 minutes did survive with a good neurological outcome. And I I think I would have expected a way less uh, percentage of that. So there are still patients more than 20% with prolonged resuscitation on ECMO that survive with a good neurological outcome. And we just finished a very comprehensive follow-up on our survivors with these long prolonged uh, resuscitation and they are back to work. They are uh, socially and and, and um, um, you know neurologically intact with a good quality of life. So how can we select these patients despite the long low flow times? That's, that's uh, the question for us now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the greatest take-homes of this paper as well, is that you showed that patients who got ROSC at the scene, you know, they're they're coming into the hospital with a pulse, some of them aren't even going to the ICU, that their long-term neurologic outcome is similar to these patients that have had these prolonged arrests and got put on ECMO and had uh, a much more rocky road.
1: Exactly. And that is uh, very, very remarkable because uh, we, we, the next step for us is to, to do these follow-up sh- uh, studies for both the ROSC and the, the ECPR group. But but seeing that, that the survival rate is so similar at six months in, in a population where you, you expect the prognosis is so dismal, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable, I think. So, so we are selecting them in a way, it, that it makes sense. But how how do we do that? Because my goal is to see that despite the long t- prolonged resuscitation, that we get even more people through that. Because uh, we have a huge challenge, which is that we have citizens who live very long away. So we will have to spend some time on scene and transportation time that will prolong that resuscitation. So how can we do that? So either try... To select them better or or introduce pre-hospital ECPR would be the next thing.
0: Yeah, I think this inequality of care question, it, it comes up a lot. I mean, with the Netherlands, we just talked about this as well. Uh, but in San Diego, we deal with it also that we have people that are really far away and they're, the population is so sparse out there. It's like, do we provide the same level of care? There's no way. There's just no way you can do that. You don't do that with trauma. You don't do that with stroke but uh, with cardiac arrest there is uh, an assumption that you're going to look at those patients the same that you're going to look at the patient that's right next to the hospital that has a cardiac mm. arrest and so uh, the netherlands dealt with it by making sure that 100 of their population could do it in denmark they do it you know you saying that well even in these prolonged arrests in this patient population we're going to give ecmo a try and it turns out the numbers were quite quite beneficial.
1: Exactly. I think if you don't try, you will never find out, right? So if you don't put them on ECMO and, and see what is, will there be a benefit, then then there won't be any project to fight for. So now we see that there are patients, despite two hours of downtime, time that do survive with a good neurological outcome. So there is some potential out there that we have to explore more, absolutely.
0: Okay. Anything else, any other take-homes for the world that, that we should learn from from your experience out there in Denmark?
1: I think you should just start your eCPR program and report that so we can get even more uh, data on, on eCPR so we can save more lives.
0: Thank you, Gary, for joining us. This, this is awesome. You.